You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. It's good to, good to see you today. Well, uh, leading up to the Olympic Games in Tokyo, I think it was all clear to all of us that Simone Biles was going to take up the global spotlight. For obvious reasons. I mean, she, when it comes to women's gymnastics, she is the undisputed greatest of all time. The GOAT, as we now refer to the greatest of all time. In fact, on this picture here, this uh, uniform that she's wearing, she would often, these last few years, have an image of a GOAT on her uniform, indicating kind of the undisputed fact that when it comes to women's gymnastics, she is the greatest. So we were all looking forward to that. I don't think anyone thought that her time on the Olympic stage was going to be more about mental health than it was about gymnastics. Like everyone, my wife and I watched Simone do her warm-ups on the vault that night, and together with the commentators, we could all tell that something was off. She wasn't her automatic self. But then, to everyone's surprise, she pulled out of the competition. And in the days that followed, we were told, told that Simone had withdrawn from the competition to focus on her mental health. Now, mental health is a term, a phrase, that we hear repeatedly, uh, increasingly. So the question is, what is mental health? We kind of have a sense of it, but I wanted to get a definition. So I went to the World Health Organization, and they define mental health this way. We'll put it up on the screen behind us. It is a state of well-being in which the individual realizes his or her own abilities can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. Pretty good definition. It's a long definition. So I would just summarize it by saying, basically, it's when your inside world allows you to handle your outside world. Now, as humans, we have a very complex inside world. And we can't see that world. And because of that, it's very hard for us to understand everything that's going on on the inside of us. And as a result, the tendency is to kind of push it aside and, and to ignore the stuff that's going on on the inside. But eventually, as we saw with Simone, what's inside comes crashing out into our outside visible world. Now, for most people in the modern conversation on mental health, the Bible has no seat at the mental health table. But the Bible claims that God created the inside world of every person who walks this earth. The Bible claims to be the words of God. And if that's true, which... I believe it is, then the Bible is a document that should be studied and applied to the inside world struggles that we all have. And that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. Our guide is going to be the largest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms. Now, Psalms is very easy to find in the Bible, not only because it's the largest, but because of its position. It's in the very middle of the Bible. So just open your Bible in the middle, and most likely you'll be in the book of Psalms. Most of the book of Psalms is written by King David. Most of the Psalms are poems, music actually written by King David. David is considered by the Jews to be the greatest of all time kings, kind of the original goat. And as such, he knew the pressures of life in the spotlight. He knew what it was like to succeed and have everybody love him and have everybody praise him. And he also knew what it was like to fail and have everybody turn on him. Now, God is not focused primarily on the outside world of how we appear to everybody else. God's primary concern is our inside world. 
He made this very clear when he selected David to be the future king. This is what he says when he selects David, because David, much to everyone's surprise, didn't appear to be the future king, but God chose him. And this is what God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is looking at our inside world. And so it's appropriate that David is the author that God selected to write most of the Psalms in a book that sheds a tremendous amount of light on our inside world, our emotions. Now, the conversation about mental health currently is marked by two kind of opposing views. You've probably heard both of these views expressed in the Simone Biles conversation. One view is that our emotions need to be ignored. We need to do our work regardless of how we feel. The other view is that our emotions should be king. So if we are anxious or we, if we are sad, then that moves to the front of the line and, and takes precedent over anything else that we're doing. Those are kind of the, the two extreme views in the mental health conversation. So what does God say through the book of Psalms? This morning, we're going to look at one particular psalm, Psalm 42. Now, this psalm, we're not exactly sure who the author is. Because at the beginning of the psalm, it says, it attributes it to the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were musicians in the temple. But when you read through the psalm, it's first person. It's about an individual describing his struggles with sadness. So the sons of Korah are the title on top, but there's an individual that this is describing. So most scholars agree that this is a psalm about the life of David. And either David wrote this himself and then gave it to the sons of Korah to turn it into music, or the sons of Korah, having been with David, wrote this as they are describing what they saw in David's life. But this is what David is struggling with. So I'm going to read several verses in this psalm, and then we're going to go back and look through it. Now, as I said, the psalms, for the most part, are poetry. Now, when it comes to emotion, there's no better language than poetry. But we're not really familiar with poetry. Poetry is sometimes hard to really figure out what it's saying. So don't get discouraged as we read through this, and if you think, I have no idea what this is saying. That this is poetry. That's a common experience when you read a poem for the first time. But we're going to walk through some of this, and I think it'll be very helpful. So here's what it says in Psalm 42. I'm going to start in verse 5 through the end of the psalm, 5 through 11. It says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, it's very, very clear, because it's repeated many times, that David is downcast. He is sad. So the question is, when it comes to this debate, which is it? 
Is it stuff your emotions or is it be a victim of your emotions? Well, it's neither. David is honest about his sadness. He doesn't ignore his emotions. He doesn't suppress them. Instead, he asks a very important question. Why? Why am I sad? What is going on in my inside world, he asks. Something is going on. Something is off. Something needs to be addressed. Now, God makes it very clear through this psalm, as well as other pages in the Bible, that our emotions are neither to be ignored, nor are they to be lived for. They are to be listened to. They are, in a sense, the cry of our soul, telling us something very important. So in the weeks to come, we're going to consider four emotions. Sad, mad, glad, and bad. We begin today with sad. David said, why am I downcast? He was downcast. He was sad. The question, of course, then is why? We're not given a direct answer, but the answer is implied pretty quickly. Our attention is directed to what he says will lift his soul out of this emotional pit of sadness. He says, put your hope in God. Now, this answer comes so quickly after the emotion of sadness that at first glance, it sounds like this is some kind of switch that David plans to flip, and then immediately, he's going to be fine. He's going to be happy. But this is a summary verse that's repeated several times in this particular psalm. And it represents a very long and a very dark struggle to actually place his hope in God. In fact, a few verses earlier in the psalm, we read this. David says, my tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? This doesn't sound like a person who batted away the sadness with a simple trust in God statement. No, this is an individual who has spent days and nights in tears. The implication is he's so distraught, so sad, he can't even eat. His food is tears and sadness. This is a man who had no answer to people who were asking, where is your God? Through David's struggles, God is pointing to the cause of sadness for us all, a loss of hope. Why are you downcast? The answer is pretty clear. You've lost hope in the future. You see, hope does for our souls what light does for our bodies. It allows us to move into the future. It illuminates the path ahead of us. One of my favorite Canadian parks is close to where my parents used to live in British Columbia. It's called Othello Provincial Park. Here's a picture of a part of that park. If you ever get a chance to go here, pull off Highway 1 and do this. It's an abandoned section of tunnels along the old Canadian Pacific Rail Line. Some of the tunnels are so long that you walk into them, and before you realize it, you can't see ahead of you. You can't see any light because it's so long. The first time I did this, I was with my brother, and we got to that point, and I said, okay, we didn't, forgot to bring you flashlights, so we got to turn around. My brother said, just wait. And as we kept looking ahead, eventually our eyes adjusted to the dark, and we saw a faint glow, enough to walk a little bit further. We kept walking, and eventually we saw the other side of that tunnel. Now, God has designed our bodies to move forward. That's why our eyes face forward. But in order for us to move forward, we have to have enough light to see the path in front of us. In a similar way, God designed our souls 
to move forward. We want to make progress in life. We want to go in circles. We don't want to go backwards. But in order for our souls to move forward, we must have hope to see the path ahead of us. So here's the principle. Light illuminates the visible world, and hope illuminates the inside world. Light illuminates the visible world. Hope illuminates our hearts, the inside world. That's why we often say when we feel some hope that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're not speaking of physical light. We're using that as an analogy to speak of hope. It's like light. So it is through our, li- our eyes that we sense light. It is through our emotions that we sense hope. So just like light, our sadness and our loss of hope has different levels of darkness or, or dimness. Sadness is kind of at the mild end of the darkness, the loss of hope spectrum. You know, when we feel it, we feel a shadow come across our path, something is discouraging that occurs, and it casts doubts on our future hopes. Depression and despair, though, they are on the darkest side of the loss of hope spectrum. They are pretty much total blackness. When all hope is lost, we see no reason to go on. We stop moving. And if it's black enough, long enough, even death, It lies to us, but even death promises to offer more light than the darkness we find ourselves in. But sadness isn't just an unwelcome intruder into our hearts and the evil of this broken world. Sadness, like our emotions can be, is a very important truth teller. So there are two truths. Whenever we're sad, there's two truths that God is communicating to us through the voice of our soul. We're going to look at these this morning. Truth number one is this. We are moving toward an artificial hope. When we are sad, we are moving towards some hope that's replaced God. Some artificial hope. Now, we all do this. This is the message that our sadness is telling us. You know, visible light has two sources. There's natural light, and there's what we're experiencing inside here, artificial light. Natural light, of course, is what God does. It's the sun, it's the moon, stars. Artificial light is what we do through light bulbs and power plants. Now, natural light, of course, is always much more powerful than artificial light. The problem is we don't control natural light. The sun does not rise or set on our command. Artificial light, on the other hand, we do control. It goes on or off when you flip a switch. So you don't have to wait for artificial light like you do for the sun. Now, the light of hope that illuminates our soul, our future, also has two very similar kinds of sources. There is a a hope that God provides, and there is a hope that we provide in this world. Now, the hope that God provides, the natural hope, is much more powerful, but again, like natural light, we don't control it. We have to wait for God. So guess which hope we prefer? Artificial hope, of course. It may be a lot smaller than divine hope, than hope in God, but the button of control is in our hands, not God's. So why was David sad? Well, we're not really told. We don't know the specifics, but it does sound like the circumstances of his life 
were, were pretty dire. Things were falling apart. This is what he says in verse 7. It's a piece of poetry that may not make a lot of sense, but let's look at it. He says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All of your waves and breakers have swept over me. It's a very poetic way to describe terrible circumstances. These are all water images. The first image is of swimming in the deep. In the deep, there is no rest because you can't touch the ground. Later, he talks about God being his rock, and where is he? The idea is, is if you're swimming in the deep, you've got limited strength, and you're pretty much a victim of the waves and the currents and the wind. Life is often like this. We're in over our heads. We're exhausted, fighting against this circumstance and that circumstance, and then this happens and moves us this way. But this isn't just one deep Dave is talking about. This is deep after deep. What he says is deep is calling to deep. What does that mean? Well, the idea is that it's like they're working together. It's like they're teaming up to take him down. You know, I've just navigated this deep struggle, and now this one called to that one, and it came over, and now I'm struggling with this deepness. Just nightmare after nightmare is going on. And he says all of this is occurring in the roar of a waterfall, another water image. If you've ever been close to a waterfall, one of the primary experiences, the sound is deafening. You can't hear anyone talking. This is another feature of the dark. It's very isolating. There may be people right next to us, but we can't hear them because the noise of our circumstances drowns out their voice. Or things are so bad that people don't know what to say to us. So they don't say anything. Or, most commonly, they don't even come around because they're so awkward around the tragedy that's going on in our life. And so it's like a big waterfall is isolating us in the middle of this deep. Then he goes on to say, all of your waves and breakers have swept over me. If you've ever gotten caught in the wash of a wave, you know what David is talking about. You can't tell up from down. You're running out of air. You're trying to find the bottom so you can push off and get to the top, but you're not sure if you're going to make it. So the dark isolates us from hope and from people. That's what he's experiencing. But worst of all, what the dark tends to do over time is it isolates us from God himself. Not that God leaves but that we turn away from him. Now, David clearly has enemies that are making his life miserable. He describes them in this poem. But he places the primary blame for the darkness on God himself. Notice what it says about the waterfalls and waves and the breakers. Whose are they? Your waterfalls and your waves and your breakers, God. That's what keeps pounding me. Why would God... Or why would David blame God for the darkness? Well, because God is in charge. God could have turned on the light of David's circumstances in his life at any point. But he hadn't yet. The sun hadn't risen yet. So David is mad at God. The only source of lasting hope. And this only makes things darker. We do the same thing. You know, things get dark. In our life, the circumstances go dim, and we get sad. They stay dark, and we get mad. The emotion we're going to look at next week. 
When we get mad at God for the way things are, what was dim suddenly goes very dark. It goes black. So what do we do in the dark? Do we wait patiently in the dark for God and put our hope in him? Sometimes, but not usually. What we usually do is we look for a switch. We start scrambling around trying to find a switch, some artificial light, some hope that will illuminate our future path. Now, artificial light has two sources of power. There is the wired kind, the plug-in kind, the stuff that you have in this room. There's wires powering all of this, and then there's the battery kind. This is not battery power. This is wired power. And hope has kind of two similar types of hope. There's the kind that's kind of like wired hope, and there's the kind that's like battery hope. The wired hope is, I call it the hope that doesn't risk. It's a very small hope because it doesn't risk, but it's a little bit of light. This is like the power that must be plugged in. It's very reliable, but you can't venture far beyond the plug. You can get an extension cord, but not too many. So you have a guaranteed light source, but you got to stay close to the plug, close to the wires. So this kind of hope, the hope that doesn't risk, is powered by predictability. We place our hope in something that is pretty much guaranteed to succeed. And for it to be guaranteed to succeed, it's got to be a pretty small dream, a pretty small hope for us to be guaranteed success in it. The goal is to avoid anything that we might fail at. So what does this mean? Well, for example, this is why some people might spend too much time at work or on their hobbies and, in the process, ignore their marriages and ignore their kids. Why would someone do this? Well, because they've gotten good at work, and you can really perfect a hobby. But I don't know if I've talked to too many married people who feel like they've got marriage nailed, and they pretty much guaranteed success every conversation. Or parenting, that's a daunting task. Those are full of risk. And so they've lost hope, maybe in the marriage and in the parenting, because it's, things have gotten a little dark, and so now they they're going to hang out in the garage their whole life. They're going to hang out at work their whole life. Because there, in that small little space, there's some hope. There's some predictability. I know what I'm doing. I can succeed. I go home, it's just going to be an argument, and I don't, know how to, I don't know what to do. That's a hope that predicts. Addictions are another part of this. This is why we form addictions. Addictions are highly predictable. If you decide you want to get drunk, I predict... A good amount of success in that, in that adventure. You, you probably can pull that off. If you want to ingest a drug and get high, success. If you want to watch pornography and feel something, success. And they become addictive because they are small, little, itty-bitty, dinky little hopes. Nothing as large as you were created to accomplish. But they are guaranteed, 100% predictable. These are hopes that do not risk. Then there are hopes that do not last. This is like battery power hope, flashlight hope. It's mobile, but it doesn't last. So this kind of hope, unlike wired hope that counts on predictability, this kind of hope is powered by our desires, the ongoing desire for something new, something exciting, the belief that what I really want is there or there, or out there somewhere. 
But of course, when we arrive at whatever that hope is, that desired destination, it always eventually turns out to be less than what we hoped for, dimmer than what we thought. Why? It's a flashlight. Eventually, it grows dim. Batteries just lose power, and this kind of hope loses power. Every object of desire is like batteries. It eventually loses its appeal. But, of course, rather than realizing, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm powering my life with batteries. i got to change my power source. No, we just swap out batteries when it starts going dim. We pursue new desires. So in the face of the sadness, this person abandons one pursuit that was going to put their life together, and now they're off pursuing another one, whether it's a relationship or an object that they're going to buy. Now, the problem... What's the problem with battery power? It's really expensive. Batteries are expensive. It's the same problem with this kind of hope that doesn't last. It's very expensive to run your life on battery-powered hope. First of all, it'll cost you a lot of money because you've got to keep buying new things that promise to be what you hope for. And the biggest cost is it usually costs a lot of people, a lot of relationships, are, there's a wreckage of relationships in the path of this kind of hope. Because relationships always dim. They are always going to be a struggle. And so they, it's like batteries laying on the side of the road that used to work. And that's what happens. There's relationships laying on the side of the road that used to power hope, but now they don't. Very costly. The darkest days of David's life were not caused by the hard circumstances that he is describing in this psalm. They were caused by a pursuit of both of these kinds of artificial hopes. It started when he decided to stay home at his palace rather than lead his army in defense of his nation. That was the hope that doesn't risk. Hanging out in the palace was way less risky than going into battle. But that hanging out at the pa palace time, that led to the hope that doesn't last. He saw a woman from his palace roof a beautiful woman, and his heart was illuminated by the artificial hope of an affair. And everything went dark in David's life for a long time because of these artificial hopes. But that brings us, our sadness brings us a second truth. The second truth is this, we need to adjust toward eternal hope. Hope in God. How do we do that? Well, when we're sad, we really have two options in front of us. We can look for another light switch, or we can wait for the sun to rise. We can wait for God. The common response, of course, is to look for another light switch to bring us some more artificial light. But God has brought the darkness into our lives. As David said, these are your waves. These are your waterfalls. These are your breakers. God has allowed the dark into our lives to teach us to wait and look for the promised sunrise. God's purpose in the dark is not to destroy us. It's to train us, to wean us from all of the artificial hopes, and as David said, to teach us over time to put our hope in God, not in however bright or dim our lives feel right now. But here's the problem. God's hope is not something you can see quickly. And, and a shift in hope is an 
almost a glacial adjustment. It's slow. It's not a switch that we can flip. It's not something we can read the psalm and say, oh, I got it. I'll just, this afternoon, I'll just switch and I'll put my hope in God. It, it takes longer than that. It's important to see it. It's important to decide it. But our hearts must be trained to look for the sunrise. And this is why very, people, very few people put their hope in God. Because they are unwilling to feel sad at all. There are two conditions under which the eyes of our soul can be trained and can adjust to the light of God's hope. The first is darkness. If we are going to switch hope from artificial hope to a hope in God, it's, it's going to require darkness. You see, it's in the dark that the pupils of your physical eyes dilate and you become more sensitive to light. The eyes of our soul work much the same way. In a life that is filled with all light and happiness and pleasure and success, our souls are rarely sensitive enough to see the invisible God. And here's the hard thing. God is best seen in the dark. 20 years ago, we took our kids out to the desert to see the Hale-Bopp Comet. I don't know how many of you got a chance to see that comet. It was amazing. And we've been told that if you're really going to see it, you've got to go out to the desert and you've got to sit in the dark for at least 15 minutes so that your eyes can adjust to see the brilliance of this comet on the night sky. So we did that. We went out to the desert, got in a big clearing, and we tried to sit in the dark so that our eyes could adjust. But we raised city kids, <laughs> artificial light kids. They were freaked out by the dark. I mean, the whole time was, who's that? Is that a bat? Is there a bear over there? Who's that? It's like, look up to the sky. <gasps> and we didn't make 15 minutes. I mean, it, it was falling apart. They didn't want to sit and wait so they could see the amazing light in the heavens. They were too afraid of the dark. We do the same thing when it comes to the circumstances of our life. Right now in our culture, feeling sad is a moral wrong. So, very few people put their hope in God. It requires darkness if we're going to switch hopes. I don't like darkness, but it requires it. The second thing it requires if we're going to switch hope, it requires memory. Memory in God's goodness and what God has done. You see, the only real hope is God, a hope that he is there, that he is real, that he is good, and that he will act, that the sun will rise. The problem is we can't see him, and he mean, may not seem good to us right now. So what do we do when everything around us looks like, as David's enemies were saying to him, where is your God? David apparently had no answer. I don't know. I can't see him either. What do we do? We have to borrow a memory from the past and project it onto the future path. That's what David did. Here's what he says in verse 6. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. What does that mean? 
Well, those places mean nothing to us. But to David? <laughs> those places were places where the sun had risen, where God had shown up in the middle of the darkness, where things had gone from hopeless to hopeful. God had shown up. God had protected. God had saved. And David said, I've got to remember those days. I've got to remember those scenes where God has rescued me out of calamity. It's the same kind of places and times in my life, probably in years. Places where God has turned darkness into light. The problem is we all forget. The sun has risen in our lives many times, but when you're in the middle of the night, it's hard to remember the sun is coming. And that's the way we are with our memory. You know, if you stare at a light, just take a light bulb. You stare at a light bulb and then look away, what happens? You can still see that light, can't you? You can see the outline of that light bulb. It's ghosted on what you're looking. Even the light bulb's over here, but it's ghosted on where you're looking. This is what memory is like for our soul. Remembering God's goodness in the past illuminates the soul as it looks to the future. It's a memory of God's goodness that is projected like a ghosted image on the present and on the future. The best source of this kind of memory light is God's Word. God's Word contains story after story after story of how God showed up in tremendous darkness and truth after truth after truth that illuminates the future but just like with our eyes we have to look at the source of light long enough and repeatedly I mean you look at a light bulb and look away you can see the silhouette for 20 seconds and then it's gone it fades quickly this is why we must keep remembering we must keep looking at God's word the greatest source of memory of God's goodness and his presence and his truth. So for me, personally, this past year, I have had to increase my personal time in the Bible every morning. Why? It's been a dark year. And there are many, many mornings where I have gotten out of bed and I would say, emotionally, I've been in the pit just this heaviness, just this sadness, and I didn't want to do anything. And what I found is reading God's words is the only thing that rung by rung, verse by verse, has helped me climb out of my emotional pit and get my head screwed on straight and begin to see God's goodness ghosted on the darkness of this world and move into the future. I've had to do it as a matter of survival, emotionally. And I've learned the value of memorizing verses. Because then I can review them during the day and project that image on my future as it gets dark again. So I would encourage you, if you're struggling with sadness, remember your God. Pull out the Bible and remember. Five minutes isn't going to do it. Ten minutes won't do it. I don't know how long, but however long it takes. It'll affect your entire day. So I don't know how dark it is for you. Maybe you're one of those people that are just always optimistic. 
God bless you. I've never understood you, but God bless you. I'm so happy for you. I think I mean that. But if you're struggling with sadness, listen to me. Do not waste the sadness that comes out of all of this dark. It's been too tough of a year to waste it. Allow the eyes of your soul to adjust to the eternal hope. And hear me. The sun will rise. Scripture says, one of the verses that I pray in Ephesians is, I pray that that God may open the eyes of your heart that you may see the hope to which he has called you. And I just pray, God, open, my, open the eyes of my heart because I can't see it so I can see the hope to which you've called me. So as David said in 42.5 of Psalms, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Father, you warn us that the unseen enemy that we face is the ruler of the kingdom of the darkness. And as such, his main goal is to keep us in the dark. To keep us in the dark about your truth and to keep us in the dark emotionally. He loves nothing more than to throw us in dungeons of darkness and lock it and throw the key away. And in those dungeons, he wants us eventually to end our life. But, oh God, you have given us the keys of freedom. And I pray in all the darkness and all the sadness of this world that you would resurrect soul after soul in this community, and in our families, and help us to see the hope that we have been given in you and the hope that you've called us to. Help us to not be overwhelmed by the darkness. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.